0: And register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com.
1: Hey, it's Max. I am all alone in the studio. Evan's uh, on vacation. He's on a beach somewhere. Aaron, also on vacation. Also, I think, on a beach somewhere. And uh, I am all alone in this very warm studio to tell you that we're taking a break this week. And uh, we are replaying... A conversation that I had with Brian Reed on March 31st, which was three days after he and the team at Serial and This American Life uh, released S-Town. It was a pretty crazy time to talk to uh, Brian. I think he had not uh, totally processed what they had just done. It was the longest conversation he'd had about it. At that point, and I think it's still one of the longest conversations, at least public conversations, he's had about the show, which, of course, went on to become one of, if not the most listened to podcasts of all time. It is the story of a man named John B. McLemore, who called Brian uh, almost three and a half years ago, I guess a little bit more than that now. And Brian spent three and a half years in the small town in Alabama that John is from, reporting his story, figuring out the town. It is a remarkable Piece of work. And uh, something else you should know is that Brian is an old friend of mine. We've known each other for a long time and uh, it was really fun. It was really fun to get this time with him right after the thing came out and try and uh, think through it a little bit together. Before we get to the conversation, I just want to tell you quickly Squarespace is making this show possible today. Whether you need a portfolio to showcase your work, a store to sell your products and services, or a blog to share your ideas, Squarespace gives you everything you need to make your next move and turn it into a reality. Go to squarespace.com and start a free trial today. And to the offer code LONGFORM, you'll get 10% off your first purchase. Thanks to them. And thanks, of course, to our friends at MailChimp, longtime supporters of this show. Go to readthissummer.com. You can read along with us and the uh, fine folks at MailChimp. All summer, we're going to be with them at the Decatur Book Festival over Labor Day I tried to get Brian to come with us, but uh, he's got a wedding, apparently. Anyway, here's my conversation with Brian Reed. If you have not listened to S-Town yet, there are tons and tons of spoilers in here. So I don't know what you've been waiting for, but go listen to it. We'll see you next week. Hey, Brian Reed. Max Linsky. It is good to see you. It is very good to see you. It's been too long. It has been too long, man. It has been too long. Uh, I have so many memories of our time together, but one memory (laughs) is sitting with you at some bar in, like, the East Village right around, like, three and plus years ago. Okay. And you telling me about this email you got. Really?
0: Yeah. Gosh, I don't remember. I thought you were going to say a bar in Chicago, but (laughs) never mind. (laughs) Uh, Maybe on
1: a different podcast we could talk about our time in Chicago. All right, good. Yeah, let's do that Uh, next time.
0: There's more pressing matters now. Wait, listen, so wait, what do you remember? Listeners
1: should know that you and I spent a, a very <laughs> blissed out, weird romantic couple of days yeah. in Chicago.
0: Yeah, I a... mean it was romantic. It was dark. It was fun. It was physically taxing. Very it was, physically yeah, taxing. It was all stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh!
1: Uh, it? Anyway, a couple of years ago, you and I were having this beer, and uh-huh. you told me about this email that gosh. you had gotten from a guy in Alabama. Okay, and you had not got down yet.
0: Had I talked to him? Yeah,
1: you talked to him. Okay but you hadn't gone. And like, Yeah, I would have
0: just if it was actually 3 years ago, if that's where you're if you're right about that, then I would have just started talking to him. Like I
1: think you would maybe talk to him that day. It was All very right. fresh in your mind. Okay. And the what I remember of that conversation was you saying, "I don't know if anything will ever come of this, but I feel like I
0: need to go there." Yeah, that's an accurate reflection of my feelings <laughs> at the time. I mean, that's I think that's like the spirit of the existence of the story, I guess. It's just like a weird magnetism or something, mm-hmm. you know.
1: And so having finished S-Town, how have the
0: last 72 hours been? Dude, it's been surreal. I've gone through like a whole different arcs of emotions. We put S-Town to bed on Monday and we actually were done kind of early. So I was like kind of done. I didn't have a ton to do. I was like twiddling my thumbs around like three <laughs> in the afternoon on Monday. I mean, you had been working on it for like three years. I know, but that doesn't matter like, we had to push it a week. We, we were going to release it a week earlier, and we pushed it a week because we weren't ready. What wasn't done? The last chapter. You were still working on the last episode. Oh, yeah. A week before we were supposed to launch, I don't think I'd read the last chapter aloud. Or, like, it was really in early really? shape. Oh, yeah. And we hadn't finished the sixth chapter. Still needed a lot of work. And so we gave ourselves an extra week, but we do that all the time with This American Life Stories, too. Right. And we always expand to fill the time available. Like, we're always still working up to the deadline. So, um, I mean,
1: with a story you've been working on for three years, like, was the middle of March an arbitrary time to
0: launch it? Like, like, no, we were going to launch in, like, November. (laughs) Like, we just kept, no, we just weren't, I mean, it was arbitrary in that, like, we just finally had to be, like this is when we're doing it. Like, I have a day job I have to get back to. Like, they want me back at This American Life. Like, I've been gone for a year to do this thing full time. You know, like, it's time for me to go back. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, advertisers are actual, like, companies that are like, we're going to support this thing, but we kind of need it to, like, be in the first quarter. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) So we made the first quarter by two days. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I would made some last-minute changes to chapters three and seven, um, on Monday morning. Like you were like re- yeah. retracking yes. stuff on Monday morning. Yeah. And then I was kind of like freed up in the afternoon and it didn't feel right. I was like, I am forgetting something. What'd you do? I don't even know, dude. I have no idea what I was doing. Like Julie, my co-creator of this, she was doing the final mixes and stuff. So she was doing more. She was like getting, but even she, like she left at like six. It was crazy. That lets us this whole period of like Monday evening where the thing was done, six and a half hours of material or whatever was done. And there were like, you know, 12 to 16 hours before anybody was going to hear it. (laughs) And I felt high. Like I was blissed out. I didn't feel jittery. It was crazy. I didn't like, I was just like, this is out of my hands. And i had been in work mode on it for so long. Like it's an emotional story. And I, I feel like often when I talk to people about it, they're like, oh, that must be so emotional for you to create this thing. And it happens with other stories too that are dark or troublesome or, you know, dealing with trauma and stuff. And yeah, there are definitely moments when you're interviewing people and when you're thinking about stuff where it's emotional. But I would say, like the vast majority of like making a radio story for me, the experience is more like building a house or something. You know what I mean? It's like work. You're building a thing. You that's can't... an
1: interesting thing for someone from a family of home builders to say.
0: Well, that's how I think about it. It's like that's the jobs. I don't know. My dad's like a house. I don't know. It just I kind of think of it as work in that way. I love the work. It's really enjoyable. It's creative. It's fulfilling. It's challenging. But I would say the majority of it, it isn't emotional. So I've been in that mode for so long on this, just trying to get it, make it happen, that like, so then like, I had this like euphoric feeling, like <laughs> that night, I just like walked through the city, and like went with my wife for dinner, I was just blissed out. I was like, I don't think I'll, I don't know if I'll ever make something like this again, <laughs> like I may never have this feeling again, and so let me just enjoy it. And then in the morning, like people started hearing it, and listening, and I started, it was really cool, like because we've never done this before, we've never released all, the chapters at once. No one's ever done that before. Is that true? You would and I would. It's yeah. true enough. Yeah. So So we were just it was interesting to watch people get to different parts in the story yeah. like on Twitter and stuff. And so this and since then in 72 hours it's just been like really moving. Like like it's been really moving. First of all like I finally had time to feel emotional about it. Like about John And realizing that people were hearing it as a tribute to him, it's been emotional to get responses from such a variety of people who are listening to this. So people in the story living in Alabama who I've known for years now, juxtaposed with like people in Hollywood listening to it, (laughs) juxtaposed with like friends who I haven't talked to in a long time texting me as they get to different chapters out of the woodwork and like family and like my brother who I've never like he binged the whole thing. And in a day, he's never I've never seen him read a book or like watch even like a serialized TV show
1: what did he think of it
0: he dug it i don't know yeah i haven't talked to him directly he's been texting me as he was going through i haven't seen him and then the last thing that was moving was like julie and i uh julie snyder who's a co-creator of serial and has been my editor for a long time and used to be the senior producer of this american life and so when i first started talking to john she was she was my editor at this american life and so she and i was talking to her about the story all the time and playing her tape from john and stuff and so we created this together and uh You know, we've been talking about it as like a novel to each other, a nonfiction audio novel, which we were like, this is just the thing we're calling it to each other. Like, we're never going to call it this publicly because no one would ever understand what the hell we're talking about. And it doesn't sound like something I think that a lot of people would want to listen to, like a nonfiction audio novel. Like, what does that even mean? And does that even sound sexy enough that people would want to listen to it? But for us, that was kind of like what we felt the story was just like the nature of it Hmm. and so we were working really hard to create something that sounded new to us and i think we thought maybe what we were doing was kind of subtle but to like like i've seen all these people like reaching out and like calling it a novel and saying they loved it being literary or novelistic that's been so surreal to like actually realize that like people are getting the thing we were trying to do and liking the thing we were trying to do that we thought might be, like, a turn-off. <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, but, I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. surprised to hear you say that you felt like the novelistic aspect of it was subtle.
0: I know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we thought we were being, like, more subtle with it than we were. But then again, we, like, we called them chapters and stuff, so I don't know, maybe we weren't. But, like, I didn't know that, I don't know, people seemed to really be getting what we were seeing in it you know, mm-hmm. in a way that I didn't expect... Because it's different. I haven't we didn't have a ton to compare to. I mean, here's the other thing like about us. I don't know, like I've given talks before where people are like, so like do you like look into your listeners and like kind of figure out what they're interested in and what stories they like and you know, do audience research or something like that? And the answer is no, like we do not care. <laughs> like like we are out to amuse ourselves. Like that's that's the driving principle of this American life that's always been Irish driving principle and he's instilled it in all of us. And it's Awesome. I mean like it's the best job like and you know amusement is a can be a wide term like it can mean serious investigative reporting just in terms of engaging ourselves, you know, or compelling ourselves. But We're following our own interests and trying to amuse ourselves. Right. And, and part,
1: so and, and part of what is amusing here is trying to do something that sounds different than anything. Right. You and guys- so I
0: do. But I think like I'm not often thinking about how people are going to hear it for a lot of the process. It's just like, do I like this? Mm-hmm. Does this move me? Does this surprise me? Do I get a kick out of this piece of tape? That's really what it is. It's very self centered. So, <laughs> so, um, so, like, just... and it sounds cavalier, but like, we really, I mean, obviously, I love that listeners like it, but that's, that's kind of, I don't know. That's, I, to me, that's the way I know how to make something that works is just to like, do I like it? Do I like it? Do I like it? And then, you know, running it by my colleagues, but it's like a small group of us. Do we like this? Do we get a kick out of this? You know what I mean? Um, did you ever have doubts about this one? Oh, yeah. Definitely. I mean, there were doubts up to like when John went, did what he did. Like, I never knew if this was actually a story. Like, I was telling you, I guess, that night at the bar. But that's normal. I mean, like, we kill half the stories we start. Mm-hmm. So, I guess it meant yeah. more about like doubts around like the
1: novelistic
0: approach. Oh. No, once we started trying it and reading it for other people, I mean, Julie and I had had it kind of in our heads for a really long time. And then, like, I wrote the first chapter and read it for her and a couple other people. Seemed to be good. And then we, I think we wrote two more. And we did a big read of one through three with Ira and Sarah and Neil Drumming and Nancy Updike. And it was like a day long like <laughs> like thing. It was really intense. I'm very grateful that I sat through it. Um, but I don't know, it just seemed to be like, this is working, This is it's in here. And it, it was the only way that like, was making sense in terms of telling the story kind of at that point.
1: When you set out yeah. to like do something New, how many experiments did you try within this that you ultimately like didn't use Mm -hmm.
0: well I mean so there was a long time before we started even structuring the thing so like you know so John um, killed himself and it was shortly after that we kind of talked about it and we were like is this, what do we do? Like, is this a story? Like, what do we do here? And it seemed like there were things happening in the wake of his suicide to the people who knew him. And but after that, we had no idea what the story would look like. We had no idea like what it would be. We kind of had a sense it wouldn't be This American Life episode, mm-hmm. you know. But we didn't know what shape. And so like, as I was following what was happening with Tyler and Rita and Charlie, you know, I would go with Tyler to he'd pay his bond to the bail bondsman. And the bail bondsman's this like loquacious, ridiculous guy with like a giant ring on. We walk into like a Baptist church to pay him. He's this giant dude who's like, you know, dipping jarred jalapenos into cheese whiz and doing business with Tyler over his bond, chatting up a storm and talking about his days as a cop on the railroad. And so Julie and I were like, well, maybe you interview the bail bondsman. He seems interesting, and maybe this is a story where like we could take complete tangents. You know, there was another town council member who John knew who'd been put in prison for in federal prison for embezzling almost a million dollars. It was very surprising. She's like this very active, friendly church lady kind of, you know. I never interviewed that bail bondsman in the end, but um I did interview her for like 4 hours just about her life and got her whole story. So like we were like we don't know if maybe the way this story goes is it's a portrait of the town in this way where like we tell complete left turns mm-hmm. that have nothing to or very little to do with John. And then finally when like Julie and I could finally work on this full time at the beginning of last summer, we started talking about the shape and like talking through the different elements we had. And that was a long process. And that gradually became clear that like, we have enough about John and Tyler and a couple of these relationships that it's going to be a little more hermetic, mm-hmm. you know, but we didn't know that until we sat down to talk it through. And I had gathered all sorts of stuff that were possibilities, you know.
1: So basically the approach is just kind of like get everything <laughs> you can give yourself as many options and then. Like, sit in a room and try and figure it out. Yeah,
0: I mean, guided closely by a very kind of high bar of what's interesting. So help, that,
1: help me understand where you were at in thinking about the story when he killed himself.
0: I mean, I was in the middle of a whole nother story at that point. Like, I was doing an hour-long story for This American Life the week he killed himself. It was coming out the next week. And I'd been talking to him on the phone because I was like, this is going to be done on the 4th of July. And I'm going to come down afterwards. Um, Because I had a couple loose ends I wanted to to tie up regarding the initial murder investigation he called me down for, and he'd been talking to me more and more about Tyler, and I wanted to like kind of be there for some of their relationship. I was interested in that relationship again, not really knowing what it was except that I wasn't bored hearing about it, Mm -hmm. and. So, yeah, our last couple phone calls were me being like, let me just get this thing out. I'll be down right after 4th of July. And he was just like, oh, it's going to be so fucking hot. You're going to get such a shit down here in the summer. It's so hot. My God. And the fleas. And the... I'm going to have to like, get the housekeeper over here and all this stuff. And then, yeah, like that, that week he, uh, he he committed suicide. So I flew down for the funeral. You know, I think it was a week later. And uh, at that point I was just like, I just want to go to the funeral
1: obviously you were there as a reporter, like you recorded it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wondered as I was listening to it and even just hearing you talk about it now, I mean, I would know you to be someone who would go to that funeral no matter what. Yeah. And I wondered where the line was there for you. Like Mm -hmm. how much were you there for John and how much were you there for whatever story might come out of this reporting you'd been doing?
0: I didn't know. Like I didn't, that was like the week where it was just like, I don't know, I would have gone regardless. I wanted to go. Right, and I um, guess that, I guess my question was, yeah. how did it
1: feel to be recording that funeral, not knowing if you would use yeah. it?
0: It felt, in one way, it felt normal. We would try to record everything we can as reporters. Um, it wasn't a private event; anyone could go there. You know, I purposely didn't bring like my giant. I didn't want to be like any kind of visible impediment on the funeral, you know. But I wanted at the very least to be able to like write accurately what was said if I did write about it. Mm-hmm. I was open to not playing any of it. You know what I mean? Like I didn't know if I would, you know, but I wanted to be able to like say accurately what was said cuz I really I didn't know, like, you know, like I just didn't know the lay of the land like mm-hmm. you know, I got in this picture from Tyler who I did know was close to John that there was something nefarious happening, right? you know? So I was just like, I just don't know. And like, maybe I'm just here and I'm never going to come back here. And maybe I'm going to keep doing a story and I want to be here anyway. Like it's all those things. But to me, it's like, it, it's a it was a unique experience for sure in, in my career, but it's not that far off from like the normal murkiness that's in most like journalistic enterprises, if that makes sense. It's in the same family.
1: It was just kind of like a, a heightened version of it or something.
0: I guess so. Yeah. That said, like what it was like for me was I was attending a funeral. Like, you know what I mean? I had, I just had my phone going, Mm -hmm. but other than that, like I attended the funeral and like had the feelings that I had thinking about John, wondering about his life. I, you know, as I say in the story, I felt like the John I knew at least wasn't represented at the funeral, which isn't necessarily a funeral's job. I think there's there can be debate on that. But mm-hmm. if I died, I would want my funeral to represent me personally. I don't know how John felt about it. Honestly, that was my main feeling, was just like, wow, the religion in here is just not John's jam at all. <laughs> you know, like yeah, that was it just honestly that off. was the main disor it was a disorienting experience to be grieving a man through this prism that he so rejected. There's a lot to sort through here to figure out, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> like, that yeah.
1: So just to keep with the chronology here for a second, so that's end of June. 2015 yeah at what point did you guys commit to doing this as like a spin-off standalone series
0: um i think within a week we i was like can we just talk about this for five minutes julian ira i mean when i learned that john died like i call ira i was like this happened you know he's like oh, i'm so sorry and should i and i was like i know i'm producing this thing next week can i go to the funeral he's like yeah hey, you should totally go um Ira's instinct is oh, is more of a reporter's one where he's just like this is the story and you should be documenting at all times that's his instinct like even more than mine I'd say mm-hmm. so then the funeral so then I like kind of checked in with them afterwards and I let him know what it was like I kind of talked him through like this situation of like I didn't know who was there exactly and there is this kind of brewing battle where like you know Tyler is saying like he's getting screwed and I do know that John laid out some wishes, or like he didn't lay out, but he talked to me about some wishes he had about it. So, like I was like, there, you know, there might be something going on. And then, um, also, I described being with Tyler's family afterwards, and just like Uncle Jimmy being around, and just, just like, I've just never been a place like this. I've never (laughs) been to a funeral day that was like this. Like, I think that was part of for them where they understood like why I was like thinking about doing more, partly too. I was like, this is why I'm interested. I have questions about John. There might be something weird going on with his estate. So that's two very clear things I could report on. Meanwhile, the world of it is, it's just interesting to me. Like I've just never been a place quite like this and, you know, been on a funeral day like this and Uncle Jimmy and stuff. And then in terms of the storytelling, we did talk about that briefly. So I don't think we were like, this is a spinoff or something, but I think we were like, in this American life, even though it's got so much space to be creative and to do experiments and to try new things, it's amazing canvas for all that. It still does come out of this history of a radio show. And some of the conventions of radio is that like you can't rewind it, you know, like you are listening in the car or you're washing the dishes and you're doing other things and so we still at this american life like have a bit of didacticism that has to happen in the stories because we're worried that you're going to miss important information Mm -hmm. like if we're going to take a left turn or spend a few minutes talking about a tangent literally saying like trust us like this is going to be a tangent but it's important for this reason and we'll be back you know like saying things like that and we were like this story feels like it'd be cool if we didn't have to do that so much. Like if we could create a context in which Julie was saying this in this conversation where she was like, it'd be nice if we didn't have to be so didactic with this story. We could let things breathe a little bit. And she was like, you know, like with a novel, like, you know, you open up a novel and maybe the first page you're just talking about some character in the in May Day Arrest, like doing something. Or you've been in the middle of the novel and you start a chapter and it might start with some other character and you don't know why. But you know it's novel. So you're just like, I know this is how novels are <laughs> you know what I <laughs> right, mean like right, sometimes like, they, they don't the just conceit. say like listen to the story because this is the thesis or yeah. we've uncovered this information or it's gonna give you this payoff at the end or like just just trust me I'm gonna talk about clocks like people for a know what novels are and so we were like maybe we can do something like that like where we can create a context in a podcast where people understand that's what we're doing and they trust us to stay with it even though we're not telling them why they should stay with it at all at all points
1: Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for just a second to tell you a little bit about the sponsors, making today's show possible. First up, a new one, Babbel. Did you know that Babbel is the number one selling language app in the world? Maybe you want to just learn a language because uh, you got an upcoming trip, or maybe there's someone in your life that you're having a little trouble communicating with. Maybe you, like me, have always just wanted to learn a language, but you've never gotten around to doing it. Babbel makes it super easy. You can learn how to have real-life conversations in a new language all from your desktop smartphone or tablet because Babbel's interactive technology is so effective you'll actually remember what you learn that's the point of this like to actually use it you don't have to just take a test in school at the end this is for you and for you to use with short convenient 10 to 15 minute lessons you can learn where you are on your own schedule when it works for you and right now long-form listeners can get three months of Babbel free when you sign up for three months at babbel.com slash podcast and use the offer code longform Again, that's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash podcast and use the offer code longform. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And maybe once you've learned that foreign language, you'll want to put up a website about your travels uh, in which you spoke so fluently. If you wanted to do so, I would recommend Squarespace. Squarespace is the best way to put up a website you have been meaning to build, whether it's a portfolio to showcase your work, a store to sell your products and services, or a blog to share your ideas. Squarespace gives you everything you need to look like an expert right from the start. You can even get a unique domain, and that's good for, you know, your brand, your game. It's, uh, it's strong. Have your own URL. A couple other things about Squarespace. You don't need to know any code. Everything's just drag and drop. You can make it with a click of a mouse. Super easy. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. You will not have a problem, but if you do, Squarespace has award-winning 24-7 customer support that can help you with anything. Think of them as your very own IT department. So make your next move and start your free trial at squarespace.com today. Enter the code LONGFORM. You're going to get 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's LONGFORM. 10% off your first purchase at squarespace.com. Thanks to them once again for sponsoring the show, and let's get back to Brian. I'm interested in like the tone with which you reported. Okay. Um, I think there is uh, a real danger Mm -hmm. when a a Ivy League educated dude from Connecticut who works in New York City goes to spend a lot of time in a God, small you town in Alabama so,
0: you just did to me what, what people are afraid I was going to do to people down there I think <laughs> really by think saying that? all those things yeah I think so
1: well you didn't let me finish my,
0: my, uh, my I'm not trip. mad at you about it it's very easy to do but yeah
1: I'm interested in yeah. how you report a story like this from a place of non-judgmental curiosity. How do you do that?
0: Mm-hmm. I didn't mean to sound so defensive about that, by the way. <laughs> it came out wrong. It's okay. Here's why I said that. Let me just this is a tangent and then I'll answer that question. Like I remember in one of the early edits of just like my coworkers being like, "So what is like what is Brian's character?" And they're like talking about me and like I'm right here, guys. <laughs> like <laughs> um, you know, and different coworkers know different things about my life and stuff. Some people were like, "Well, it's funny that you're like this Ivy League guy like in this like clock shop with these dudes, you know." And then like Julie would be like, Yeah, I know, but I feel like knowing a little bit about your family, like she's met my parents and stuff, that doesn't capture like where you come from exactly. Like like the connotations that certain descriptions of my life bring, I don't think accurately reflect my life. So like when you say, for instance, and I'm not mad at you about it, but like like an Ivy League guy from Connecticut, I know what that makes people think, and that's not me. And actually when this happened, I was like, I want to be super careful that I don't do that to anybody else that experience of like sitting in a room talking about how I would be portrayed possibly and the signifiers that would be used to describe me potentially and then the feeling I had of yeah I'm from Connecticut I went to the Ivy League but I also like that's not the socioeconomic class I'm from my dad didn't finish college you know Um, there were long stretches in my life where my dad was unemployed like how hard it is to actually fully capture a person beyond the things that you know like the easiest way to talk about a person like can often be very misleading
1: mm-hmm.
0: and i don't know that like so that was later in the process as i was writing where i was just like oh like i have this power pa- like a power over like describing these people and i want to be careful with it but yeah a couple of people have asked me since it came out like how you know like there's such a danger of um especially with like a, a northern reporter or a new york reporter going to the south the rural south yeah. and there's such a danger of falling into stereotypes and reducing people and I'm sure there are places where I failed and and like didn't do it as well as I could have, you know, but like I'm sure there are, but um I didn't get hung up on like that specific kind of dynamic or juxtaposition of like New York reporter going down there. Like the week I went to visit John in 2014, I don't remember the exact order of these things, but I know that within a month, here are the places that I went reporting. Right before that, I had spent a week in Milwaukee riding around with the Milwaukee police on the night shift, and then also interviewing black residents. Then the next week, I went to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania to interview a guy who had joined this really weird like marketing scheme. I think it was those two first, and then I went down to John, but it was like those three things were in the same, like one week after another, mm. and then I went down to Bibb County. and. Uh, I don't feel like I was any different in any of those places. Like, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm in the South, like I need to be extra wary of reducing people or giving into stereotypes or something. It's just like following my questions about people and just trusting that, I guess, and interacting with them on their own terms, but also my own terms too. So it's like not being afraid to call people out when I think it's weird, <laughs> you know, or like, to push back on things that I think are wrong, but not in like a judgmental way, like a jokey way, or the way, like better than the way I did with you when I bristled earlier. <laughs> like that was like one of the worst times I've ever done that. <laughs> Maybe, but um, you know what I mean? Like, like, where do you think that confidence comes from? The confidence. Well, that comes from. I mean, that's a learn. That's partly a learned, um, like, professional skill too. I'd say, like, um. I've now worked in radio for, gosh, almost 10 years. You deal with enough tape, and one of the biggest problems, both as a reporter and a producer, when people who are newer to it, I'd say, and that I fell into early on, is if the reporter or the interviewer isn't saying to the person in the tape what the audience is going to be thinking or the point they're going to want to make about the tape, if that's not in the tape and you don't have the person reacting to it, and you don't have a moment built around that feeling and that question and that observation, the tape often becomes unusable. And so I think part of it is like, it's it's a professional skill that I've developed and i've just gotten more confident at it at the way in the way that anybody develops a professional skill that they get better at mm-hmm. you know in the way that like you might get more confident at like shooting like free throws or something if that makes sense yeah that totally um, makes yeah. sense i think i think yeah.
1: the this is maybe just the experience of listening yeah. to s town listening to the stuff you do generally but particularly s town as someone who knows you is um it doesn't sound that different to me than how you are when you're not trying to get tape
0: well, that's good then i'm glad i mean i'm glad yeah i hope it's not um
1: like the two things feel. I'm not ca- putting on a
0: show, you know. Like, a, like a, the two things feel connected to me is what yeah. I'm saying.
1: It's not as though those instincts didn't exist. No, I
0: do. I think I'm personally suited for my profession. Like, you know, I think like i found a job that really suits me, and I feel very grateful for that. So yeah, I'm sure it is part of my personality too. You know, because it it does feel right when I'm doing it. I mean, sometimes it's hard. Um, and I think the more you do radio, the more you realize that the most fun tape. I mean, there's a certain type of radio tape where, like, you're you're getting someone to tell you a story about something that happened in the past. That's, like, the basic building block of, like, a narrative radio story. Yeah. And ra- radio is amazing in that way where, like, you can build a whole story about something that happened years ago if the storyteller recounts it to you well. And if, as an interviewer, you're getting them to lay it out in beats and with, you know, moments of reflection. And, like, that takes a lot of time to learn as, like, a radio producer to learn how to get that kind of tape and when the tape is good and how to get the feelings that you want to get at certain points in the anecdotes and the story. So that's one kind of tape. But as you do more and more radio, like the more interesting and weird tape, it's not that kind of tape. You know, (laughs) the most interesting tape is like tape where you're expressing how you're feeling to someone and you don't know how they're going to say it. Or like tape where like something's changing in the interview, like something's happening in real time rather than, the interviewee recounting something in the past. That tape can be very powerful, but like, I don't know what I'm interested in this point, like just doing this for so long is tape where stuff's happening in it. <laughs> you know, Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that moment in S-Town yeah. where you're, you're like, you have a crazy look in your eye. Yeah. Is one of those moments? Exactly, yeah, no, it's like, and a lot of the editing in S-Town, like in chapter six, actually, which is almost entirely with this guy, Olin, Olin I mean, we talked for so long, and he had so many memories of John's just biography. And so there were versions of that chapter where it was much more biographical. Like, Mm -hmm. it was like...
1: Right, and then in the final version, that's almost like a little aside.
0: Particularly Neil Drumming, my colleague Neil, who was in on all our edits, he was really, like, pushing us on this. He was just like, after, like, three edits, we weren't quite getting it. Like, we were cutting biography out, but it was still kind of focused around the biography. And Olin was a nice talker and he had good stories and incredible memory for detail. So I was like, this is radio. Like he's telling me about the main character's life and he's got great anecdotes about every aspect of his life. Like he spent how many hundreds of hours on the phone with him and Olin's a good storyteller himself. I'm like, this is radio. This will work. I think we can have room in the story for some like anecdotes. And Neil was just like, it's not dynamic like the other chapters to hear him for a really long time, lay out anecdotes about John's life. Like you can have some of that. But he was like, the more interesting thing that's happening in this interview is their relationship Mm -hmm. and Olin working through it and you being a conduit for that. And so, like, the process of those edits with that episode was, like, cutting out a lot of the more kind of, like, standard radio tape and focusing on the moments where Olin was working through his relationship with John. And we read it for him. He was like, yeah. And he- it was much quieter at the end and it was not what Julie and I had imagined. Yeah. And now we we thought that was gonna be one of the easier episodes or easier chapters. Right. And it was cool that Neil held us to like a higher standard in terms of like you guys seem to have like accomplished something interesting in the other chapters where like it's never that standard radio tape really. It's like things are advancing in the tape. We've been
1: we've been talking for a long time. We haven't talked about um, the decision around episode two.
0: Okay. Um, which decision?
1: The decision to have John suicide that early in your story. Mm -hmm. I mean, the last 20 minutes of episode two, I don't know, man. I haven't heard anything better than that or more Uh moving than that. Like, I, thought, I love that stretch <laughs> so much. I
0: I, I, I'm, I appreciate it.
1: And I mean, I thought like, I, I, I honestly <laughs> thought, like thought the twist was gonna be about like humanity. <laughs> yeah. Like I was listening to it in the middle of the night um, in my house, it was like 3.30 okay. in the morning. I'd, I had woken up, couldn't sleep and was listening to it. Mm-hmm. And um, all these people had already told me like, just wait for the end of episode two, okay. which was annoying yeah and so I knew something was coming you know yeah and I really thought there's this mo- like the, like the sundial stuff got me
0: anyway, John told me sundials often have mottos engraved on them John says tedious and brief is one what do you mean tedious your and brief? life is tedious and brief all sundial mottos are sad like that. There are hundreds of these mottos. Life passes like the shadow. Make haste, but slowly. Use the hours, don't count them. Even as you watch, I'm fleeing. Soon comes night. These little reminders are out there, hidden in crannies around the world. I recently happened upon a sundial in the cemetery of an old Catholic mission next to a grave. Because of John, I knew to look for the motto. It read, Neil Boni Hodier, DM Perdidi. I did nothing good today. I have lost a day. Can I ask you this? Or yeah. I know you're supposed to be asking me questions, but I'm curious. Like when you're hearing the sundial stuff, kind of where are you at? Because at that point, the question of the murder has been put to bed. Yeah, I felt like
1: the turn we were taking, and this is something about the position that. Serial in this American life are in, which is like, I have complete faith that if you guys are going to do seven episodes in a spin off series, it will deliver on some level, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it,
0: it's a helpful position to be in. Yeah, yeah. There's
1: an expectation that the time will work. And, and again, like, mm-hmm. I think it's commendable and remarkable to take that and try and do something new and weird and um, somewhat difficult at points. Right, uh, like I, 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 think that's a uh, that's a cool we're way trying, to handle that. We're spot. trying to
0: not be bored, you know. Right, right. Fend off boredom. Um,
1: uh, so, uh, I knew it was going to be going somewhere. And really, like I felt like <laughs> I didn't know exactly what the prayer was going to be, but I felt like the twist was basically going to be: this isn't a true crime story. Uh-huh. This is a story about time and humanity and, and living your best life. Okay. <laughs> you know? Um and so I was not I was not ready for that phone call with Skylar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and uh the sundial stuff I mean really like I was like I wanted to like go like wake my kid up and you oh. know like give him a hug. Oh um, <laughs> <laughs> and then like I wanted to go and yeah, like sundials are beautiful. It's I, a
0: beautiful thing that I never yeah. knew about. <laughs> it was really yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It
1: was I, I, uh, yeah man, it got me. Yeah. Um but for this character that You're that invested in by the end of episode two uh, and connected to um, to have. I mean, obviously, you guys are making this decision, you know, two years later, a year and a half afterwards to have him to have you to have the listeners find out that early in the series. I, I wondered whether that was a decision that came early, late, how you think about the timing of a
0: turn like that. Um, what I remember about that is shortly after he died in real life like again I kind of had these two reporting threads that I was looking at like learning about his life finding people who knew him calling people on his contact list that was one thread and then this other thread of the estate battle and uh, I found that the more time went on and the more reporting I did on that stuff in my head like my just kind of like hazy sense of the structure, which was not written down or anything like that. I could just sense that the spot where his suicide would come in the story was getting earlier and earlier to the point where I remember by the time we finally, like after almost, you know, nine months had gone by of reporting after he died or more, sitting down with Julie to finally structure this out, knowing like, I think think we're going to do the news about the suicide at the end of chapter two. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of just out of an instinct of like, most of the actual reporting I have now, most of the actual action where things are happening, where there are moments where I don't know what's going to happen and then something happens and I learn something, the majority of that happens after he died, you know? Um, like, I'd only had one trip down there with him when he was alive and then like nine or ten trips like after he died, oh, you know? Okay. And uh, I don't know what we would have put in the story to make it still a story that you'd want to keep listening to. Mm-hmm. Without telling you, like, this is actually what the story is about at that point, you know? If that makes sense. Um, Yeah,
1: well, I mean, it's funny. I uh, did this interview with David Gran once and asked him about twists. Mm -hmm. And his whole theory of twists is like, they have to happen the way that they happen to the people in the story.
0: And that's also true. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And in this case, like, it happened to you.
0: Yeah. You know?
1: And it feels like it kind of happens to you when it happened to you.
0: Yeah. I think that's true. I think that's true. I mean, I do think like in certain situations we might have had more flexibility with where we could have talked about that if the murder investigation had been different in some way or there had been some other piece of corruption that I had looked into, but I hadn't. So we only had so much material to talk about before we had to explain why we were still interested in the story, Mm -hmm. you know? And the reason we're still interested in the story is is John's death and the things that happened as a result. When you set out to like do something new, mm-hmm. what do
1: you draw on? Like, S Town doesn't sound like any other podcast.
0: So, mm-hmm. where did you look for your like inspiration and in how to do it? Um, Julie and I talked about novels. You know, we, you know, I wasn't involved in the creation of Serial, but I was around, and I've talked to Julie and Sarah about it and stuff. And I know they thought about it more like TV. You know. Um, or it's my understanding, I think maybe I think this is true. I think Sarah was like, well it'll be like an it'll be like an audiobook. And then Julia was like, No, 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 TV. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's my understanding of the early early kind of conception of it. So if that was more like TV, we explicitly talked about novels as like a thing to think about in terms of structuring this, and for a few reasons. First of all, like the world of the story, the feel of it, the details, like the metaphors upon metaphor that John was handing me, like in terms of <laughs> the maze and clock making and yeah, you know just the whole world of it felt like a novel and like that kind of seemed right then also um, I've been pretty clear like I always wanted it all to come out at once Um, and why were you so clear on that well a couple reasons like I didn't want to do the first chapter I mean a, a practical one quite honestly is like if we were to release the first chapter you would google John's name and know that he died um. So I always knew that at least the first two had to come out together. Another practical reason is I cannot do what Sarah does. Like, I could never write a thing every week like that. I just, it's not impossible. She's, like, just, a, like, it's a miracle <laughs> that she can do that. I have no idea how she does it. I, I wouldn't want to do it. Uh-huh. I don't aspire to do it. Like, it sounds so hard and, like, difficult. Yeah, it's hard. I take longer. <laughs> not... So that was another one those are the practical ones. But then like the feeling, like we knew that we didn't want every chapter to have to end with a cliffhanger. We didn't have that many cliffhangers. We had some, but also we didn't want to have to, like Mm -hmm. it felt a little dirty or something to have to, you know, Um, or just boring or something. We wanted some chapters to have a quieter ending or an idea ending or a mood ending, you know, and it felt like that would serve our ability to do that, to, to release them all at once. So I always kind of had that sense. And then also I was like the experiment of it. I don't think, I don't know of anyone who's done it, right. at least with a story like this, that sounded cool to me. So there were, those were the kind of my early reasons for it. Um, <clears throat> and then we started talking about novels pretty early on um, when we started structuring. And I think we looked at novels for two different types of things in terms of like inspiration. One was just va- like a feel and a mood. So like one novel I know that Julie and I both read was um, Stoner by John Williams, which like it was like the hip thing to be reading. It's like <laughs> um, that book is a piece of fiction. That's have you read it It's short? Never read it. No, It's just about the life of this guy, William Stoner, I believe, who's a professor at like a Midwestern college, like in the f- mid 20th century, the very small story of his unremarkable life. It's devastating. The first paragraph just lays out basically like all the unremarkable things about his life. Like he was a professor his whole life. He never left this town. Like he never wrote anything of note after he died. Very few of his colleagues would ever remember him. Like it just lays all that out in the first paragraph. And we, I don't think structurally we really like. I mean, it's a feat of prose. It's amazing. Just that like he keeps you interested. There's no plot. You know, like it's just this guy going through the things that make up a life, but the vibe of like a story about a life was in our minds. Mm -hmm. Like, so we did talk about stoner early on just as like, we both like that, (laughs) you know, but then we weren't like, all right, so what does stoner do? And all that stuff where we did look to actually steal like a trick was this author, Edward P Jones, who I love. He's from DC and he has one novel, The known world, which is just incredible.
1: What was the trick from that book?
0: Both his book and his short stories. He has two short story collections. He does this move in his writing where, like, he'll be talking about maybe a main character or maybe a tangential character, and he'll give a sentence or a few sentences where he'll just say something that happens to them in the future, like in the future tense or like a, in the whatever tense it is called when you're like he would go on to do such and such thing years later. And sometimes it's relevant to the plot and sometimes it's not. And what we realized when I when we sat down at the beginning of summer 2016, so last summer when Julie and I finally were like, okay, let's actually talk about the tape we have, the story we have, what structure this would be. We kind of realized that like I'd been around so long reporting this thing that I'd accidentally given myself the magic power of omniscience in a (laughs) lot of situations. Does that make sense? Like like it kind of, I was like, wait a minute. So like there's gonna be points in the story where I'm talking about something that happened a year and a half ago and I know what happens. Like I'm like got this omniscient, people literally been born and died in the time that I've been around. And all the other things that happen in a life, like I was like, it'd be cool to try and use that power a little bit. And to me, like I like how in fiction Edward P. Jones uses that power. And so I went, like I I had read The Known World already, like I went through the first like hundred pages and underlined like every time that he used that trick, basically just mm-hmm. to kind of get it in my head. And it, I thought it would appear in the in S Town more than it does, but it does appear a little bit.
1: Give me give me like an example of where it appears.
0: Um. In the first chapter, um, when I first meet Tyler in John's clock shop and he's filing a chainsaw, there's a line where I say, if Tyler's wearing a shirt, you know that he's going to court. At least that's what his mom will tell me one day. Mm-hmm. I think she told me that a year and a half later, you know, right. um, and there's little moments like that throughout where it's future tense, which is, like, not something I often hear in radio stories, you yeah, know? definitely not. <laughs> so, and then as we were structuring it, we were like, okay, maybe some omniscience goes here. And we had a, like, you know, we structured the thing using note cards of different colors. We had a whole key, like, it's still on the wall. Julie the other day was like, I think I need to take this down to talk about, like, the next season of Serial. I was like, can we leave it up <laughs> a little longer? But, like, there's a whole wall in the office that's just filled with note cards. You need to, like, send me a picture of that, and we'll put it in the show notes or something. Okay, I have pictures. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, and it wraps around a corner. Cause the way we structured it is like, it's just Julie and me like sitting there kind of like jamming, like just talking through different ways that it could go for days and days and days for like months, (laughs) like just like, all right. So we start with you getting an email and then we just like talk through like, and then this and then this and then this, no, that would, we don't need that yet. Or that's too much information there. Or Julie will try something and I'll be like, that was good up until this point. Then I got bored. So let's not do that. Or like. I think if we keep this till later it'll be more surprising like it's all that kind of stuff and we're just doing that constantly and doing it over and over again about the same parts of the story to refine it like over the course of a year and so as but in this early stage like we were doing it and so we would talk it through it and write it on a whiteboard and we got to the end of what seemed like the end of a chapter we took a picture of it transcribed it into Google Docs did the next one and we did that through we had nine episodes the first time we did it and we were like okay we can't like picture what we've done now because it's not all in one place Right. so we were like okay let's start again so like and then we started writing them on note cards and actually putting them on the wall so that we could look at the whole thing like in one spot rather than having to go from Google Doc to Google Doc or whatever or even just one Google Doc and then so then we were nine ch- episodes though the ninth one was a little bit of a grad bag of like material <laughs> it was like whatever's left over <laughs> right. so at that point Julie had the brilliant idea of asking Starly Kind to come in Cause she's just really good at like talking through story she's like a genius about that and uh, so she came in and we sat there with the note cards on the wall and spent two days telling her the story based on the note cards I think we only played her that first phone call of tape and other than that there was no tape played I hadn't cut any other tape and uh, so just so she could hear John's voice and kind of why we liked hearing from him you know so she could get that but otherwise we just talked her through every beat of the story and she was amazing she immediately got kind of what we were trying to do she got that we were trying to do something a little different that we're trying to break some rules she was very um encouraging and like i don't think you need to be as didactic i think in podcasting we're relying on this like over explanation too much i Mm -hmm. think listeners are getting more sophisticated to this medium like they don't need this as much and we shouldn't feel so bound by it so she was very encouraging in that sense and but mostly she would just be like we get to a part she'd be like um boring you don't need that i understand that about this character already like we don't need that um or like I think you should move this up, you know. And by the time we got to the end of the two days, we were down to seven chapters. Basically, we cut enough and rearranged enough. And she also gave us like an incredibly important idea that helped the story exist at what the was end. That? The idea that um, she was thinking it would go in chapter seven, but as we started writing, we put it in chapter three. That John calls me down here to like uncover a body. Um, of this alleged murder that had happened and that would expose shit town but actually John's the body that was starles like those are her words do
1: you think that like your presence in that town and in John's life impacted the story in any way
0: like the heisenberg uncertainty principle yeah oh absolutely i mean that i believe in that principle as like a physical law of the world then it certainly applies to reporting anytime a reporter's doing a story the reporters creating the story like they have questions like just the basic fact of a reporter having a question which you can't be a reporter if you don't have a question you are willing a story into being
1: I think uh, yes yeah. that, that all makes sense I think I, right. I meant that question less conceptually mm-hmm. I think what I, like an, uh, no, I think wait. what I was asking was what do you think your interest
0: meant to John in his in his life yeah um, there's a lot of reasons why a source might be motivated to reach out to a journalist and to spend time with a journalist. They could be uh, like, you know, whistleblower. They could be, you know, like that instinct, you know, to expose wrongdoing. It could be, um, Like, you have some kind of agenda, you know, some kind of personal agenda, you know, like the whole world, you know, is open to journalism and there could be people in different corners. I think something that doesn't get talked about as much that I experienced a lot in this story as a motivation for why John or other people are in this story is to just get a kick out of a reporter being around. Like, it's just kind of a, it injects incitement into their life (laughs) to have someone there. It's new, it's weird, it's funny. Like, I'm someone they can fuck with a little bit, if that makes sense. Like... So I think John got a kick of me being around. We talked about so much shit that had nothing to do with anything. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, he, he like, oh, my God. Like, I've sat through lectures that he put together with, like, slideshows on climate change and energy depletion with, like, ridiculous, like, YouTube videos and pornography. Like, all sorts of stuff that he was just, like, you need to d- sit through this lecture and then we can talk about the murder. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like it literally was. Like, yeah. um, like I'm, I'm like, I call him in the morning one morning. I'm like, I'm on my way over. We got to go to the library today, whatever. Uh, he's like, okay, but sure. First, you guys, he's like, it's only 20 minutes. I've timed it. You got to sit through this climate <laughs> change lecture. <laughs> like, literally, I get to his house, and there's, like, on his computer, 50 tabs open, and then he just goes on this, like, lecture where he's going from tab to tab in perfect order, and the tabs are graphs and interspersed with funny videos to make me laugh like along with like information that's so dense and images I don't know you know what I mean like yeah. he's getting a kick out of it like and he knew and he you know he said a couple times to me we thought about putting this tape in the story about ultimately we didn't there's a couple times when I was down there where he was like I knew you were going to come down here and get a story that's more interesting than the one you came down here for like he knew like you know and like um, he there was one point where we were talking I was asking about something about his life because I was also obviously interested in John I wasn't just like murder 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 like you know this guy is in front of me like what there's a mate I'm not gonna be like oh don't I don't want to see the maze you, you know <laughs> what I mean like what like <laughs> you know um like so like he was telling me the story of when he quit college and how he just like stood up and walked out like he just was like he was fuck it basically is what he was um he just like walked out of a final and never went back to college And I think that's what he was talking about. I could be wrong. But like he was reminded of this quote from a Balzac story because I was inquiring about his instinct to quit college that way. And he was like, it's like that quote in in Droll Stories, like, I live life on a grand scale, my sir. I live life on a grand scale. And he was like, what story is that from? The Droll Stories. And he goes over to his his, uh, bookshelf and pulls down the Droll Stories and searches for the quote. And it's like some character in some story and like some French court who's actually got, like, flatulence or something and needs to, like, walk out of the court. It's so ridiculous. And he's, like, reappropriating the quote and saying, like, I live life on a grand scale. Like, he's putting on a show for me, you know? Um, And that dynamic, like, we talked about, like, one day you could name this show Shit Town. You know what I mean? Like, he knew. Like, I think and I told him I was interested in him. Like I was like, I think the story, like your part, why I'm interested in this story. Like I told him that you know, and I think it fed it, it fed itself a bit like that dynamic where he would put on a bit of a show for me, you know? Um, and so like, there's, it's a unique thing in his life. I think like to have that experience, to have someone interested in you and ask you about yourself and to follow you into your weird interests. Um, it's validating. Yeah. It's validating. It's a little, you know, it's, it's, There are strange parts to it because, like, we got to know each other. I cared about him. Very little was asked about my life, you know. So it's not a friendship, because a friendship would be two ways. Or if it wasn't two ways, I would have the right to be like, "Hey, dude, like, you're being pretty like self-centered." But like, like it's my job to just listen and ask questions, and you know, um, and it's an interesting relationship. What do you think you would have thought of it? Then result. I would never venture to put myself inside John B. Macklemore's brain. I really wouldn't. To, I have knew no, it. I think he could have honed in on some detail of it that would like set him off. Or I think he could have loved it. Or, I, you know, I don't know. I would never presume to know how that man would respond to anything.
1: <laughs> have you thought you about it?
0: it? No, because I'm not making it for him. Like I'm making it about him and he's... I'm making it for his memory. But but I'm I'm not making it for him to hear, you know? And um No, I think like if I was making it for him, like there would be three chapters about peak oil. I'm serious. Like that's if I was making it for him, it would be three chapters about peak oil. Like it's a story I'm telling that I like that's about him and doing him justice and stuff. And and but also I don't think a lot of people would listen if it was like his lectures on peak oil, you know? So like I don't know.
1: How do you think you'd be uh, received if you showed up in Woodstock right now?
0: I'm getting reactions. They're drizzling in. Um, I think it'd be good. I think it'd be okay, actually. I wasn't sure for a little bit, but I think it'd be okay. Like, there were a couple stories that came out, like, the morning we launched that a couple local reporters I've been working on ahead of time, and we'd given them a couple episodes to listen to. We, you know, We wanted the local press to cover it and stuff. We want people there to listen to it, obviously, and a couple of them like had quotes from people I have done interviews with worried about the story, saying maybe they wish they hadn't taken part, stuff like that. And one was like, you know, slightly frightened of the public attention, and you know, I mean, we contact all of the people in the story and offer them help with like making their Facebook settings private or give them advice on if they want to take their Facebook down. Like we we talk to people about this before it comes out, and. You know it's obviously up to them you know but we kind of talked to them about what could happen or you know you know just in terms of like you know people are going to hear this and uh so the couple of people i read these quotes from like the mayor was one of them and i'd interviewed his wife and him and uh you know the title shit town like talk of a murder i think like you, you know i get it like i'm not. It's not it's not an easy story to describe and then to name it shit. I get why (laughs) like they would bristle at it. So I wrote them and just, was like, I'm sorry you feel this way. I worry that you have the wrong idea about the story. Um, Just please listen to it. And like, I hope you, I hope you like it. Like it really, it's not a bad story about a scandal in the town. It's a sad story about John's life. You know, like that was kind of how I framed it. And uh, so then anyway, People have been listening and writing me and saying like, yeah, I regret saying that to that reporter and this is really nice and maybe there's one or two things like I'm bothered by but like it's a really good story and you know, my wife, one guy was like, my wife listened and she loves novels and she got through it all already and she said it was incredible and so like that's the highest praise you could get, you know, and uh, even I've heard now from the mayor's wife and she was like. Thank you for portraying me the way you did. Like you're a good storyteller, and and then yeah, she really she liked it. She had I think she listened to just parts at that point, and then she said and then she said her husband liked it too. And I've heard from Tyler's family, and they um, they loved it apparently. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and I've, we started to get emails and see things online from people I don't know who are from Bibb County or live there now or used to live there and almost all of them are completely validating in terms of like either saying like you totally captured it or writing me to tell me about more corruption that's happening <laughs> that I need to look into like in John's way where I'm just like I don't know if this is true like you guys think there's so much paranoia about local corruption where it's just completely validating of like chapter 4 in particular and John's whole premise of writing us
1: how so. how meaningful is that reaction to you
0: which part which one
1: having people say that it's good and sounds true.
0: Oh my god, you can't... Like, yeah, I couldn't ask for anything. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to capture reality. Um, so, like, yeah. Like, that's the highest praise I could ask for. You know? More than it made me cry or something like that. You know? Like, the people in it feel that it's true and that they learn something from it about their place, but that also the people outside are getting an accurate picture. I mean, God, I, I can't. I mean, I worked really hard to make that the case, so I'm really pleased that they feel that way, you know? And I don't think I'm gonna, uh, like, please everybody, but so far it's been affirming in that way.
1: Ultimately, what, uh, what do you think the story is about? Oh my God.
0: <laughs> I don't know, I haven't listened to, like, the whole thing produced. Like, I don't have the experience of listening to it in the proximity that I think listeners are now hearing it.
1: You never listened to it like one through seven straight through? No time. No. (laughs) Even while you were blissfully walking around the city?
0: Well, then it was too late to do anything about it. So I certainly wasn't going to do anything then. Um, The last time I've heard some chapters was months ago, you know. So it's a little hard. Like, I do think. There's a package we've created that I don't have a total sense of mm-hmm. right now, if that makes sense. Yeah. but Like I think hope I mean I think it's a lot about a lot of things. like one thing that I think it's about is like how we are part of the places that we come from and the way a place is a reflection of the people who live there. But also then influences back the people who live there, and just the relationship between people. And and it sounds very academic or something, but like that's kind of a thing that like hangs in the story because it's a story about this place. But it's a story about this place as this guy sees it, as John sees it. You know. So I think in like a broad sense, that's what it's about. But then it's also just about um, the remarkableness of of an like what could be called an unremarkable life. You know. Like I've had people. A couple, maybe just one, but like I've been told by people who knew John in in town, like he didn't accomplish anything. And that's why he was so bitter. And I hope this pushes it back against that notion, you know, Um, if that makes sense. But it's a story that's also about climate change, (laughs) you know, and like, uh, and titty rings and like, uh, I don't know, like it's a story about a lot of stuff.
1: There's a thing, uh, it's a thing that happens in novels, okay. some of the novels you have mentioned, sure. I'm sure this happens in, um, in which some characters are left unresolved, uh-huh. some storylines remain slightly unknown, mm-hmm. you
0: don't get every answer. Mm-hmm. The kind of novels my mom hates. <laughs> For example. Yeah. I was like mom I don't think you're gonna know I don't know if you're gonna like shit down but anyway <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, do you feel unresolved about things in the story that are unresolved
0: in like a intellectual sense like I understand that there are things unresolved in the story Um, in terms of hidden treasure or, you know things like that in terms of whether John indeed did have mercury poisoning or Mad Hatter's disease, which, you know, I'm unable to say definitively, emotionally and spiritually, I don't feel unresolved about it. I feel like we really did put together a package of a story with what we had, you know, and so that I feel, I feel okay with it. And actually like the questions that are kind of lingering, like are part of it in a way that I'm, I think are cool, you know, like that I hope are part of the texture of the story, you know? Uh, is there anything about yeah.
1: it for you not in the package that you put out but for you personally in the emotional spiritual realm that's unresolved? unresolved
0: I mean besides wishing that like John didn't commit suicide you know like but that's almost a selfish wish quite honestly like I've also I think I've come to the point where um, I was very kind of like of that mind for a long time and then talking to his friends more and more and having people who knew him far better than I did and far longer and more intimately say like, like I think he, um, you know, people tell me like, I I think it's okay that he did this. Like I I feel relieved for him. I've come around to understanding that and even being at peace with that, you know? So I think for a long time there was like this, just like, like there were parts of working on the, the reporting where it was very, um, I know I said a lot of it is like building a house, but there were parts during the reporting, like you know, in the middle of my dozen or some odd trips down there, where it's just like I do just feel like a little bit of a sinking feeling in my stomach a lot of just like this sucks, you know, like I really wish this didn't happen. Um,
1: did you have that feeling when you would listen back to the tape where he would talk about it with you?
0: Well, I, I purposely didn't listen back to any tape with John for a very long time. Um after he died like I there was enough to report on and we weren't ready just like on the show for me and Julie to be working on it full time actually like creating it where I didn't have to listen back to John and so I didn't um and I was grateful for that um so by the time I actually went back to my report recordings with John almost a year had passed since he died and I think that was really helpful you know um But because I knew that those times were in there and those I thought about a lot. And I talked to his friends about it, you know, because we all had the same experience. He told the majority of people in his life that he was going to commit suicide. In many cases, he told them for years and over and over again. And none of us did anything. Um, And so, yeah, I was I talked to a lot of people about that. Like that was like this is something as a person I want to talk about with people and maybe it's something we'll talk about in the story. I don't know, but, um, it was helpful for me. Not everyone feels this way and maybe it's even the minority, but I came around to like particular John's professor who's known him the majority of his life and knowing how depressed he was even in college. He was just like, I'm relieved for John. Like, I don't feel that this was a bad decision for him to commit suicide. Um. like I eventually kind of came around to that spot hmm. Um. so and like you know I'm open to the idea that like people can decide to do this you know and it's not my instinct to feel that that's like certainly not what I believe about suicide personally or ending my life or anything Um, I'm not like a trained mental health person or anything but I'm willing to allow for the like there to exist in the world, people who believe that they should be able to do that, you know? And that was some that was like a journey I took kind of in talking to people who knew John really well, you know.
1: Did arriving at that place give you the space to end the show with his note?
0: Um I don't know if it was directly related to that. Like the note when I saw it, the thing that really and actually it was it was really Julie who helped me make sense of what the note meant in the context of the story. And maybe I don't know if this is because like I was I knew John and she didn't or just because she's like super smart and good at her job. But, um, she just pointed out like, actually, this is, you know, if you put aside like the manifesto parts and stuff, if you actually look at the part that's about his life, like um, he's saying I did it like he's saying I did it like despite um, hating where he lives and all the terrible things around him and the way it made him feel confined what he's saying in the note is I was still able to live like a worthwhile life that's that's the argument he's making you know, he's saying, I engaged with all these ideas around the world. Like I accomplished things I wanted to accomplish. I spent my hours doing things that I chose. Um, I've had it better than so many other people. And so then we were like, well, that should be at the end. Like, that's how he felt about it at the end, you know? So.
1: I'm glad you feel good about it at the end, Brian.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's not like I don't feel uplifted by what he did. I don't feel happy about it, but I've, again, it's like with other things, like I'm not going to totally judge it myself. I'm not inside his experience, you know? So. I don't mean good. I mean at peace. Oh. Yeah. I think I do at this point at least, but it's also going to be a thing that I'm not going to just going to move on from it. Like I'm sure I'll have different feelings, but at this point I feel, um, we put a lot of work into making this thing and you know, I, I don't feel totally like maybe there's some unresolved stuff that I'm just ignoring right now, but anyway. um, well, you put a lot of work yeah. into talking to me about it and I appreciate yeah. it. It was a pleasure. Thank you for helping me think through it. It's the longest conversation I've had about it since it came out 72 hours ago. So thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to long form. I'm Max Linsky, my co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor on this episode was Mickey Capper. Our associate producer is Courtney Harrell. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, Squarespace, Babbel, and of course, MailChimp. Go to readthissummer.com to read along with us and MailChimp all summer. And, uh, thanks, of course, most of all to Brian Reed. When we had this conversation, I think he wasn't quite sure, um, what was going to happen with S-Town, and I was. And, uh, it's just amazing. I'm, uh, proud of that guy we'll see you next week